It's no secret. America is in the throes of the most significant public health crisis ever. Addiction and overdose impact millions of families. In 2017, more than 72,000 people died from an accidental drug overdose in the U.S., while more than 88,000 people die annually from alcohol-related causes. Those statistics, while harrowing, don't articulate what substance use looks like from person to person. As a society, we tend to look at substance use as cut and dry, a weakness or character flaw, when in reality, seeking pleasure is about as human as it gets. Avoiding pain is part of our daily cycle. This crisis is beginning to cause people to think about their behaviors and the way they treat others who use substances. So how does someone go from using drugs recreationally to building a tolerance or going through withdrawal? How can a high morph into an overdose? What about the family members who love someone struggling with addiction? What happens to them? Where do you turn when someone you love has died from a substance-related death? It's complicated. But with knowledge and support, hope exists. We are five women under 35 who have loved, lost, and learned more than we ever wanted to about substance use. Our goal is simple, to give a voice to people across the globe impacted by substance use and to let them know they are not alone. By sharing our stories and evidence-based research as our driving force, we hope to open minds and ultimately save lives. Join us, the ladies of Live for Lolly, me, Chelsea Laliberte, Courtney Gunkelman, Jess Weston, Stephanie Cyrus, and our producer, Danny Mastriani, as we use our heroine voices to get sincere, honest, emotional, and probably a bit controversial from time to time. Stigma ends here, but hope begins here. Hello to our listening public. Thank you for joining us for our fifth episode of Heroin Voices. Tonight we are going to be talking with several people about SUD and the family impact. We have various different people here from a mom that has a incarcerated son to someone who's lost their daughter and everything in between with honesty. Just like substance use disorder is individual, so is the family impact and how we all deal with having someone we love with substance use disorder. Thanks so much for being here tonight, guys. Uh, We really appreciate it, and we're um, looking forward to hearing about your stories. The first thing we'd like to do is just go around, introduce yourself, and tell us about how um, substance use disorder has impacted you and your family. Hi, my name is Lauren. Substance use disorder has impacted my family significantly. My son's first overdose was January 18th, 2009, and we've been dealing with it ever since. So it's sort of the roller coaster that you don't really pay for. You don't really enjoy the ride. So if you had paid for it, you'd be asking for a refund. But, you know, it just, it's never ending. Um, My son is currently incarcerated, which is actually a good thing because he's here. And I can see him once every two weeks and talk to him every now and again. But for a long time, I, we didn't even think that we would get to that point. And, you know, it's just the unknown and the constant constant worry about what shoe is going to drop where and when and how hard. Hi, my name is Susan and I am a mother um, who lost her daughter Becca to a fentanyl overdose February 15th, 2016. I relate to those, of course, the stories of those still in recovery um, as I went through that as well with my daughter. Um, It was a short amount of time 
that I knew about her opioid use, probably about a year. And of course, you know, there's as a mother who's lost some lost her child, there's always those uh, what could I have done? You know, and I, I know, especially knowing support group that, you know, I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. But obviously my life has been rapidly changed. My substance use disorder, you know, every day is still a struggle, but, um, you know, there's a lot of support out, out there. Hi, I'm Jody. Um, I have a daughter who has a substance abuse disorder. Um, I think we've been on a roller coaster later, lately, and it's where she's doing well, and then she's not doing so well, and we've had times where she's been clean for up to a year or more, um, and then I just found out the other day that she was um, using again. Um, so I think that's really, really hard on the family. I think it's hard on the siblings. It's just that roller coaster, and we never know where we're going to be, and we always want off, but somehow we don't get to get off. Um, I'm Dan, and my daughter has the uh, substance abuse disorder, and I think I think it's been about seven or eight years, but probably longer than that. Also, I have three other kids that don't didn't go down this road, so when I beat myself up, uh, sometimes I'm wondering why uh, one did and the others didn't. And I, I think before we were involved in this as a family, I think if somebody wanted to talk about drugs and, and opioid disorders and in, in, in this, I would run away because, you know, it just wasn't something you want to talk about. And unfortunately, I think too many people are running the other way and it's, that's not helping. My name is Jen. My son, Chris, uh, got on the roller coaster at about the age of 13. And one of the things he said to me, kind of what you spoke about, Dan, is what could I have done differently? What could I have, you know, prepared myself for? And, uh, I think for the first time when Chris came out of rehab, the first thing he said to me is, you have to know this is nothing you did or you did not do to me. He goes, I have a disease. He goes, and, you know, it's going to be a long ride. He goes, this is not a stop trying to sprint this. And I was like, oh, he's talking the talk. I know what's going on. I got involved with Live for Wally. And I had no idea how long this roller coaster was going to be. I had no idea that it was going to be as terrifying and as, at times, you know, pleasurable. It brings the family together. It shows you how strong everyone will rally around someone and even rally around someone they're so angry with and they're so disgusted in their behavior. But at the end of the day, he's the brother. He's still the son. And, you know, he's currently um, out in treatment out in California and he's doing well. But that feeling of knowing that she was going to drop, I know in my heart of hearts, it, it probably will drop. And but you just kind of prepare for that and Take it day by day. And when people say, oh, day by day, it's, it's literally, it's day by day. And then when the phone rings, you jump and, you know, you just kind of prepare yourself. And, you know, there's been times, you know, to what Susan said is I've, I've almost buried my son in my head. And I almost feel like I've become almost insensitive and cold to a degree. And I find myself going, why aren't you upset? Or why aren't you crying? And I think mentally burying my son has deadened me inside to a degree and you know it's unfortunate but it is it's a mechanism that my brain has provided for me it's unfortunate so when i hear you know something sad or even something happy i'm just kind of like hmm, okay and it's it's an unfortunate aftermath of you know the robe you've been put on and um just keep chugging along you know you know it's interesting what you said that Chris said to you when he came out and he said, you know, there's nothing you did or didn't do. 
I actually had a magistrate who was addressing my son in court and he stopped and he turned and he looked at me and he said, you've done nothing wrong. Like, you've done everything right. You're here, standing here by your son who's allegedly done what he's done. And that was huge to me that, you know, someone in that position who really, you know, for the most part, the courts don't get it. Mm-hmm. He got it. And I just think that's the turn that we're seeing, that there are more people out there in whatever role they are, whether it's the police, the firefighters, the judges, the, you know, this was a federal magistrate. And he got it. I just want to say thank you all for sharing your stories. I think it's amazing that all of you are here and are willing to open up. And you guys have made such a good point. It's not easy talking about this, but it's important to do so. And I hope that that helps others realize that are part of a family where somebody's struggling, that they did like they've done the best they could. All of the trying to help that they've done matters. And unfortunately, this is something that just really can take over somebody and doing your best is something to still recognize and be proud of, even though it can feel, I'm sure, so overwhelming and like such a roller coaster. How I know some of you touched on really like all of the feelings and waves of emotion that all of you had, but I'm curious to dive a little deeper into like how this may have changed your family dynamics or how it had an impact that on only on you but on siblings for me I I think it's interesting because my kids who both have their own issues they sort of feed off each other so when one is doing well and this has sort of died down as they've gotten what I'd like to consider older one is 25 going on five but when one's doing well the other will inevitably screw up and it really becomes that check and balance. I get, I've never had a time when both of them are just doing okay for whatever reason. And I don't think it's on purpose, but I do think it's something in their mindset that when they see the one doing well, they know it, it just, it's an inevitable fact that the, they're going to either do something to harm themselves or others, or just make a choice that, is going to have a really bad repercussion, but then the attention is back on them. Mm-hmm. The thing I notice is coming to the meeting when it's mostly parents and that the newer parents of the meetings are like exhausted. You can just see the looks on their faces. They're just, they haven't slept. Their thoughts are constantly this. And, and most of them will say work is therapy, you know, or just getting outside of the thought process. You know, the other thing is when they bring kids or one of the other family members with them, you get a different view, and I think those kids can have a view that the parents don't necessarily see, and they can kind of see how they're being manipulated. But the other thing I think is the room should be full. When I leave and I go home, I feel better than I've been there, but I can't believe the size of the room isn't bigger because it's such a big problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure a lot of people just struggle with understanding like where to get support or how it's even just can be scary to open up to people to face like the reality of what's going on. And um, I'm sure oftentimes support really can be so helpful and nobody should have to go through something like this alone. I think there's a lot of times where people are in denial. I think my family spent some period of time in that too. I'd love to hear if somebody else has experienced that either themselves or 
their other children have experienced that or other family members and what that was like and kind of what was that moment where you started to realize this is happening to my family. My family's not immune. And what, what was that experience like? I, I don't want to say it's denial. I think at least for me, and I always like to just speak for me, but I've seen it in so many other families that I've talked to since in the beginning, even if, if my son was at rehab or if he was home and we were dealing with it, I would go to work and come home on a Friday and I would shut the door. And other than letting my dog out, I wouldn't leave my bed until Monday morning when it was time to go back to work and I would not speak to anyone. I would not, again, leave my house. And it was sort of my own little torture. And it went on for years, years and years and years, and no one knew. And that was all without support. And it was, you know, the first few meetings that you go to when the treatment center says, go to Al-Anon, go to Families Anonymous, and you walk into these meetings and everyone is so strong and talking about tough love. And you're sitting in the back of the room hysterical because someone said the word cigarette or whatever it is. There needs to be more personalized support that's given to people in the early stages because, you know, could I run a meeting now? Probably. So I want to know. But in the beginning when you're at a treatment center for the eighth time and you see a family that's there for the first time, it's our responsibility and our duty to reach out to these people and get their number and make sure that they call so they don't go lock themselves in their room for three days a week, every week. My third meeting, I met somebody who uh, I didn't even know was part of the whole process. Uh, I thought she was just a volunteer and she had a, a story and her tagline was Joy Trump's Grief. And I think I buried a box of Kleenexes in that meeting, but it was just it was just the way she talked about it and what she had been through, and it kind of gave you some strength because it gave her strength. But the other side of the coin is, depending on when your kids ran into this problem, you meet other parents of kids your kids' age, and their kids are now graduating college, yeah. getting married, moving on, and it's almost like either not telling your kid's story or you don't feel good about it, and. And I think that's one of the problems is you find that the, the people with the problems, they have a low self-esteem and they also have, you know, the coping skills are just tough. And I think that makes it even tougher because they know where they should be in life. And it is a disease. I mean, Lawrence pointed out, if this was cancer, if this was something else, we would treat it a lot differently. Instead, there's this stigma that you're not going to get past. I was going to say, unfortunately with me, I didn't have a lot of support outside of my family the ones who knew, you know, while Becca was alive. Part of that was because I didn't always know what she was going through either. She was definitely very secretive about what was going on. Everything's fine, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I've been clean for such and such amount of time. You know, and I didn't even, I had a lot of suspicions, but didn't even quite know what the drug use was, you know, until we found needles. And, and she didn't live with me either. That made it even more difficult. But, um, I reached out after she had passed away, you know, the Live for Lolly, and and actually it was from her stepmom who had found the information. I wasn't even at a point yet to start looking for information, but I just, you know, knew at that point I needed to be around people that understood. And, um, you know, speaking of the meetings, just, just going to a grief support group just five weeks after she passed away, you know, and hearing what everybody else had tried done and because you know you're feeling like what didn't I do what could I have done and, and you know just knowing that 
all these other people tried a million other different things and the same things and you know it was incredibly helpful for me to hear that and I feel like now I mean she's been gone three years now um, I still go to the meetings not quite as regularly as I used to and for a couple of reasons and, you know I'm doing pretty well but I'm also a person who tends to kind of keep it all to myself I don't talk about it a lot you know I do a lot of every day running around things in my head and so it's really an opportunity for me to talk to other people and that that's like my chance to like that's when I talk about it and the other thing too talking about new people coming into meetings because I've talked about it, people who have been in the support group for a while who aren't coming anymore they're like oh well you know we're doing pretty well and I said but I do think it's important for people that are just coming into the meetings you know I, I think it's important for them to see somebody who's down the road and that there is you know recovery um you know just of all the motions you go through when somebody's in the battle it's there's a whole different set of emotions that go you go through in grief so um i, mean, I can say i wish i as awful as the battle is and it was you know it's still traumatic to me I wish we were I wish we were still in it you know so and um, i always agree with what you say laura you know if you can save someone if they're still alive there is always a chance for believe in that in whichever form that takes whether it's harm reduction getting them into meetings and that's why I think it's so important to get the word out that the stigma is it's starting to fall down because I just didn't really talk to anybody about it you know I mean I told my my sisters and of course her dad knew and a few close people but when I told my mom she passed away my mom's and I said a drug overdose and she said uh from her prescription drugs like she had no idea that she'd been doing heroin I hadn't told her you know so I just think you know just talking about it is so important and knowing letting people know that there is support and help out there and just keep getting that word out speaking a little to when you would ask like what families went through in denial you know I always chalked up Chris's behavior to this is what he's, he's supposed to be doing he's supposed to be smoking the pot and drinking this is what young kids do and then all of a sudden the underage drinking tickets start happening and they start happening frequently. And I was like, I, I got, I got this. I got this. He's fine. He's fine. And then I'd see like a strange pill somewhere and I'd be like, what is this? You got like, oh, no, no, nothing. And being a single mom and taking care of two other kids and working full time and overtime, there's times where your brain has to just kind of go, he's fine. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Cause I got all this to do. He's fine. And he's still getting up. And then all of a sudden he started not going to school. So then we did change to an alternative school. And then I just, I found myself adapting to make him okay, because if he's okay, then the household's okay. And then it wasn't until I actually, I mean, he had been rocking and rolling for a long time. And I was just like, this is what kids at 16 do. This is what kids at 17 do. And then you find a box filled with needles and spoons and foils, and he's on the couch shaking and freaking out. I literally thought he had the flu. And then I picked it up and I was like, the kid is a heroin addict. Okay. Okay. And my brain just starts like processing it going, you're okay. You're fine. You're fine. You'll fix this. This is going to be okay. This is going to be okay. And then there's detox after detox after why is he using after he detox? He should be fine. And then just the whole educational piece is like detox is the least of your worries right now. And just, you keep going and going and you just keep going. If I can get past this, this point, he'll be fine. And oh, he'll be fine because now we did this. Oh, oh he's on Suboxone. Oh, he's going to be fine now. But wait, he's selling the Suboxone. And you start learning all these different pieces of this puzzle. And you're like, how is this happening? And you just kind of, 
just keep plugging away at it. And, and if you could just take one eighth of that resourcefulness right. and use it towards something else, right? He'd be a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. Right now. I mean, then be like, oh, he was at three have for thirty days, and I was like, I have no idea that thirty days is nothing. And then he's there for almost five months, and I'm like, oh, well, then this is it. I mean, he's got it. Like, what are you talking about? You're back on. I mean, and you get arrested for possession, and you're like, didn't that scare the hell out of you? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. And then they start talking things like, I'm like, aren't you afraid to die? He's like, well, no. And if you show him someone that passed away, he's like, I am sorry for that family's loss. He's like, but that does not scare me. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is your little kid. Like, and his brother and sister are terrified that you're going to die, but you're the only one who's not afraid of dying. And I was like, it's complete insanity. It is like the definition of insanity. And you're trying to, you know, I'm trying to even understand addiction. You know, it's like taking a car apart and then going, okay, get off, fix that. And you're like, well, well, I got the radiator in, but I'm not really sure how to get that piece in. And then when you get that piece in, you're like, oh, wait, that popped out. And it's just like this kind of cat and mouse game where you're just like, why can't he get it all together? And then what I've been experiencing is when he's in a rehab and he's good. And then as soon as you put him in the real world, like a big boy, he can't even tie a shoe. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And it blows my mind that this disease just completely engulfs daily skills. I mean, just like you gave him $50 to buy, you know, pants and a shirt. And next thing you know, well, you know, the guys, you know, everyone was going down to, you know, Taco Bell and I didn't want to be the only one who didn't borrow money. I'm just like, no, the pants and the shoes were important. I mean, it's just, it's completely, it just takes over and, every and you're, second. And you're in it and you don't understand it. Right. It's like people, so people outside who aren't in it. Right. To us, they're looking at you going, get your, what? Yeah. Tell, tell them what to do. Figure it out. And right. I had an experience the other day and I, I'm pretty observant. I kind of catch people's looks and stuff like that. And they don't think you're looking. And um, someone was talking about their son being talking rudely and being kind of just obnoxious and people are putting their two cents in. Well, why don't you, you know, maybe handle it this way, whatever. And I went to say something and she's like, well, and I was like, oh, because my son is a heroin user. I couldn't possibly have anything to add to this. Mm. I was like, hmm, okay, I got your number. You know, and somebody that you probably, you know, thought was cool with you or, you know, understood or every once in a while you'll hear people like I work at you know, a hospital you have people doing sitter cases. So if someone is suicidal or a user, they have to have somebody sitting with them for their protection. And um, you'll hear people like, oh, you know, who were you sitting for? You'd be like, oh, this freaking heroin junkie. And they're like, oh, sorry about that. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. no offense taken. So, I mean, it's just, it's just when you think you've made progress and just when you think people, you know, to your face, like, I, I understand it. I love you. I support you. You know, I, I mean, all the girls I work with are my friends and, you know, I consider them family. But then when you hear someone say something like that, you're like, oh, really don't get it, do you? I mean, it's frustrating. What's the thing when we were growing up, depending on our ages here, if you watch something on TV, like a Starsky and Hutch or a Beretta, the junkies were inner city. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, and it's just such a myth now, you yeah. know, because it's everywhere. I mean, Lake Forest, Oak Park, there's no there's no place you can run from it. Yeah. The other thing is, you did talk about, I mean, I remember seeing the first time in rehab, whew, we got it taken care of, uh-huh. she got the rehab, yeah. it's going to yeah. be good now. That false sense of security but the other thing that I don't ever get a grasp on is the heroin thing is to not feel, to not feel anything. Uh-huh. How can you go through life without feeling? Right. I mean, that I, to this day, I don't get it. Right. And that's the goal. I mean, and it's just, there are times, plenty of times where I, I felt like, and even probably to today is I feel like Chris stays alive. So he doesn't break my heart. And 
he said he's done things like, and you look at him and you go, what are you, t-? I mean, it just blows my mind. Like he said, he's taken auto injectors of Nurkin and like put it on his thigh. And so if he passes out, maybe he'll pass out this way and the Narcan will go into his body. And in his mind, that was a great idea. I was like, wow. He goes, because the thought of breaking your heart is, you know, it just makes me sick to my stomach. He's like, so, you know, I'll you know, try and stay alive. And, it's, and that's what we're, and people always say, like, what's the worst part of it? The worst part. It's not the stealing. It's not the lying. It's not all the crap, you know, that you make everyone feel and your, you know, your siblings and everyone's sad and scared and nervous. It's like the worst part is knowing that your kid is uncomfortable in their own skin they are so disgusted with themselves that they don't even want to be who they are and you look at your little kid that used to watch toy story and you know hug you and kiss you and all stuff and now he hates himself it's like wait when did when did that come when did that start how did we get here here? like why do you hate yourself so much that you don't want to be you and i don't have that answer and they would not hurt they would not hurt anyone right more than they hurt themselves. And I think that's why my son always flew under the radar because he was so quiet and docile and loving and sweet. He wasn't aggressive and screaming and yelling and, you know, and he how he flew. That's how he got away with things. Like the next thing in my wedding ring is gone. I'm like, as long as he's alive, I don't care. And then like two days before he went to rehab this last time in California, my gun's missing. And I was like, oh, now you've crossed the line. Kurt's like, now he's crossed the line? I'm like, are you, what, is, what are you talking about? You just, as long as they're alive, nothing he's like there needs to be repercussions i'm like but you don't get it he's alive and it's just yeah i came to a meeting and somebody complained about no spoons were left in their house i thought how would you not <laughs> notice that the next morning i'm eating cereal with a yeah, fork like, how many times over have you i realized spoons, well so. I, what the heck is wrong with me i didn't even notice right. you know? the dollar store they're like oh more spoons again i'm like yeah i'll spend a lot of money on them because they're going to be gone and that becomes normal like that becomes normal so like, how do you accept that i'd be like because i have to it's like surviving. I have to. It's yeah. my kid. What am I going to do? Be like, mm, figure it out on your own. He can't. He's a very sick boy. And I'm not going to walk away from that. I mean, and they're their own worst critics. They are tougher uh-huh. on themselves than we'll yeah. ever be. Right. Yeah. And the shame. I mean, there's, I mean, like the, the, the most recent time Chris relapsed was a while ago. He, because the thought of having to tell you that was like sickening. But then the piece of it is, is that he knows my reaction is going to be like, we're going to rally from this. We're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. So he's not all that afraid of the repercussions because the repercussions, he knows that my worst fear is, you know, him not being around. So I think there's a part of him that his disease makes him manipulate me that way. Like, it's not going to be that bad. She's not going to let me go and not have, you know, whatever it is with the group of people. Everyone's coming after a meeting. They're going to go have food. She, I know she's not going to make me be the one that does this Who's Venmoing 10 bucks to get whatever. And next thing you know, you find out that it was for something else. And it's just, you know, it's a cat and mouse game that you keep playing. Just do 18 because he can't take it out of the bag. Yeah. Yeah. You start learning all these different manipulations that you got to manipulate back. And it's interesting, like something that you said, and it just, it it hits me. So in the beginning and 10 years ago, and I think what's changed to now is it always used to be tough love and, you know, love from a distance and mm-hmm. all these things that you have to do as a parent in order to save your kid. Well, no, mm-hmm. because now tough love is a death sentence. You put your kid out and you may or may not ever see him again. And then you're filing police reports and missing persons reports and scouring the streets. And, you know, I mean, my thing, and I will stand by this regardless of who tells me it's wrong or it's not, but like, I loved my son and you don't give up on someone you love. And what, what does that mean to each person? It's different. 
But if I had to give someone advice, like just keep loving your loved mm-hmm. ones. That's why they're your loved ones, right? Like you can't not, you might not like them, but you have to always show them that they're lovable so that there's even a little part of them inside that holds on to the same hope that you do. I wish, and these are the kind of things I, I you know, when I talk about things I wish I would have known, these are the kind of things I wish I would have known. One of the things that has been mentioned is that it's a very personalized journey. And I think what's working today might change tomorrow. So what are some of the things that you've done that were helpful in supporting your child? And then what are some of the things that you've done that's helpful in supporting yourself? I think one thing I always drive home to Chris is stop letting this disease define you. You are not Chris, the heroin addict or Chris. Oh, I'm the one that's going to got the problem in the family. I'm like, that you need to stop putting that on you. Like, it's just, it, it's too overwhelming. You do not have the coping skills for that. You need to get rid of that. And and just empowering him. I mean, like, no matter how many times you screw up, I'm going to be here for you. Whether that is in a roundabout way, enabling him to behave or manipulate the way he does, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'll play the game. Because, you know, it became, I, I, I do look at it as pretty much my full-time job was to keep him alive. And I would take leave of absences and watch him, you know, shoot heroin. And as long as he was alive the next morning, I did what I had to do to keep my son alive that night. And you can say whatever you want to say about me or judge me or whatever, but he's in recovery right now. And for today, I did what I had to do. I think the best thing would be is is to find other people that understand what's going on and are educated and really just of the same you know, frame of mind. That, you know, you can call them, like I've called Lauren a million times and, you know, we haven't spoken for six months and I'll call her and be like, he relapsed, what the hell do I do? How do I get him off the street? What do I do? What do I do? And they're there immediately. You need to find those people. And what I find frustrating sometimes is I've come across people that their child's in recovery and they've been great for three, four, five years. And so they, their, their world has changed. Their world is calm and cool. And when now you come back to them, they're kind of like, well, you know that's not really like what's going on in my life now. So like they really don't have anything to add to the party because, you know, they're out of it now. And then, you know, I, I've always swore to myself that five, 10 years, if someone comes to me and be like, this is what's happening. It's like, you drop what you do. That's your responsibility. And even Chris will say when some new people come into the treatment center, it's his responsibility to make them feel comfortable and to make them feel this is where you need to be. So, um, and that's, and that's something you should continue to applaud for him because not everybody has that yeah. ability and that gift. Yeah. You know, so when you see those things in your loved ones, you, you have to applaud them right. and every single day. Like, what did you do good for someone else? Because mm-hmm. that makes them feel so much yeah. better. When he was, he was given the choice of, you know, what to do. He had to do volunteer hours to complete part of his treatment. And he's like, I want to do detox. He's like, I want to be where someone's at the dumb and dirty and they feel like crap. And I can honestly say, be like, listen, dude, physically, even if you sit this way, it's going to feel better. Or sit up and get moving. I promise this is going to suck, but I'm going to stand right next to you and do it. I'll do it till six in the morning with you. Like, that is just, that's the ultimate giving back. And all of us have that point of where we said, that's not my kid. That's not, you know, not my kid. My kid is. And once we come to the realization, yeah, my kid is in this or whatever it is, and we start learning about it, it's... The other side, and, and you mentioned that other shoe drop feeling, which is so real and so true. Mm-hmm. But the opposite of that, and you can't give up hope, is 
where you see a glimpse of that kid, that light in their eye, that mm-hmm. smile, that whatever it is that's been missing for so long, that's such a great feeling. Mm-hmm. You can't deny that for yourself, you know? Yeah. And and I think the other thing is the crazy, the crazy stuff you do. I, the first time I talked to Chelsea over a weekend and I wanted Chelsea to tell Sam this and this and this. And I literally drove my kid up to Rockford with a garbage bag of stuff, which was her, her belongings yeah. in the world. And, I was trying to get her into Rosecrans, and she's out of it. She thinks I'm crazy, and I think she's crazy. And I literally said, okay, we're going to go, and we're going to touch the door of this facility, and then I'll know I did everything I could. And we get there, and the two of us are in the parking lot, right. and security comes out, and people go, you guys okay? So, yeah, we're okay. She's just going to touch the door. The guy goes, she's going to touch the It was like this stupid thing I had in my head, right. you know? But then... That's it, where it got A to B to C to D to E. You so do what you, you got to do to get to Z. Yeah, and you'll learn never to say never because if you, I'll never do this, I'll never do that. And there's, oh. no, there's, there's no nevers. There's no law. There's no. Pride uh, today's law. episode of What Wouldn't You Do? Right. You know, I mean, I've oh, driven yeah. from San Francisco to Arizona overnight to pick my son up just to put him on a plane, you know, because that's what he needed. And there are things that I would tell people don't ever do that. You know, I've gone knocking on doors on the west side and I've chased people down the street and you know I'm not Wonder Woman like I'm just some chick from the suburbs but you know I get wings and you, you know and I can fly like, not and today. there's you're nothing not today. I can do if you're coming after my kid uh-huh. even you know even if it's my kid going after my kid and those boundaries we all talk about they change they vary oh, they're okay. high they're low I mean the boundaries are something real but it's, it's always changing. I tried to cut off our communication with Sam when she wasn't doing good because it was the way that I was able to cope by like putting it behind me and thinking it wasn't around. And then somebody said, I'd do anything to talk to my child one more time. And I quickly picked up that phone and thought, what was I doing? Yeah, I've threatened so many times. I'm going to cut your phone off. And he's like, okay. I'm only hurting myself. Right. I'm only hurting myself. And you can't track them. Right. I can't track them. What are you doing? Right. People, why do you, all this stuff you're doing by following him and doing this and doing that for him. I'm like, I go, like you're cleaning up all his fires and you're putting them out. And I'm like, and I will continue to do so. You don't get an opinion because you haven't been there. You know, and even if you have, it's a different journey. Yeah. And -hmm. you have to be very careful. You look for your family. Your friends can give you the worst advice ever. Yeah. And they can put this pox on you that you're like, all of a sudden you start doubting yourself. But you got to be really careful where, that's why these meetings in this group are so good because you get advice from people who have been to the war. But the advice you get from people who have no idea, it's like scary. The experts that are out there, scary. I get tired of hearing their, that's their decision. They just have to change the way of thinking. It's a disease. It's it's not a way of thinking. And, you know, if we had the easy button to change that. Obviously, everyone would. I think it's important. You know, I mean, there's so many different situations in this room alone. My best friend lost her brother. And I thought her mother was just go. I thought that was going to be the end of this woman. And... I remember sitting in her backyard and it's just me and it's her and my grandson was playing with her grandkids and everything was happy and and I was having a particularly hard day having come off of some pretty hard times with my Maddie and you know she looked at me and she said I would not want to go back 
to this because her son had lived in her house with her and she literally did everything she could. She said, but you know, you have something that I'll never, ever have again. And I said, what's that? She said, you have hope. You have hope that one day it'll change. And it made my heart wider toward anyone who had ever lost a sibling or a child or, you know, who, someone that they loved because they lost that hope. And I hold on to that hope with everything I have. And that woman has no idea how how life-changing those words were. And sometimes it's just those words. And, you know, if your, your daughter is here, you have hope. And I'm so sad that others do not. But it's just something to, to think about in this particular context. I think it's also taught me to choose my words wisely. Sometimes, um, you know, words can be very, very damaging. Just even like when someone says a junkie, I'm just like, wow, that's, that's I go, you don't get to call the guy on the street who looks like a junkie, a junkie, because my son is a junkie too, right? You wouldn't call Chris that, would you? Like, well, no, he's, a, he's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Watch what you say. And I think I've been able to empower people that I work with and, um, the way they, I've seen people change their language. I've seen people change what they have to say, or they'll, they'll not say it because I'm there. Okay. You know, the problem is they made a bad decision at some point. Sometimes it was a bad decision made, but after that, they had no choice. choice. And many people don't believe that. Many, many, they're like, you're an adult. You can stop this. I'm like, okay. That's, that's, you know, there's a lot of things like on Facebook, you'll see people just like rifling off stuff Yeah. and you want so badly to put your two cents in. It's like, you're not going to change their mind. You're only going to frustrate yourself and be done. We even look at the topical stories in the city this week, what happened. Yeah. It's just incredible. You know, it's incredible. I was just saying, that's why I think, you know, talking about it more and, and there's more, you know, obviously national discussion as well, because I think, you know, that is getting people, you know, because I, and I know, you know, if I say something, you know, about my daughter and then the second I say, and I'm not afraid to say how she died, you know, and. But as soon as I say that, inevitably, it's like somebody, either they know somebody, uh-huh. you know, or they know somebody, you know, or my, you know, my friends or somebody in their family. Well, let me tell you about this with my neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it starts a conversation and maybe it's like, you know, they don't know who to talk to either, even if, you know, if it's not directly affecting them in, in their immediate family, but, you know, I'll, I'll keep talking. So. Yeah, even the hospital people that I'm not, I know who they are, but I'm not really friendly with them. But in passing, they'll be like, can I just borrow you for like two minutes? Can I run something past you? I'm like, I'm seeing this. What do you, what do you think? And I'll say, I think that they're using heroin. And they're like, well, no, no, no. I'm like, no, nah, I'm telling you. You're seeing the signs. Don't ignore them like I did. Yeah. Please don't. Please don't. One of the things that was said was never say never. I'll never do this to help my child. But I think that's something that so many people say this will never happen to my family. This will never be my child. This will never be me. But I think looking around this room, we're all from different demographics. We grew up in different places, but we've all been impacted. What is something that you would want to say to those that don't understand and that might think this is your fault as a parent or this is your child's fault because of something that they did as as a teenager or as a young adult, what are, what are some of these misconceptions that you would like others who aren't as educated to know? I think judgment would probably all agree. Judgment. Right. Well, it's judgment and shame on them because 
you have senators that have lost their children. You have, you know, football pe- players, basketball football, players. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There is, there is, no one is immune. No one is immune from this disease. Like if you try to explain it logically, I would say to somebody, look at the science model of disease. Look at it. Like, look at how, why does your body have diabetes? Because this, 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 and this happened. This is why addiction happens. And this is what's going on in my son's brain. It wasn't because at 13, I let him smoke pot. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not because he drank too much with his friends. And maybe that contributed to it. Right. But his but brain is telling matter. him something, not you know, his I, choices. He's not going, I am going to screw this family up. Watch this go. I mean, and people think, well, you let this happen. I'd be like, yeah, there are things that I regret letting happen. And I'm sure they contributed to this. But it was not the end-all, be-all of what happened. Well, I also think it's really important to know that everyone's brain is modeled differently. And some brains are truly modeled towards this, you know, this flip, disease. Once you flip that switch. You know, I mean, I, I was a ripper and roller, you know, when I was younger. And one day I just said, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh-huh. You know, and it wasn't heroin, obviously, but it was enough. And I just stopped. And I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. But my husband, you know, he passed away from addiction. So, you know, I think it just really depended on how you were wired. And I see that in my kids and I see that in, you know, the kid, they all grew up together and they all did the same things, this group of kids, yet three of them have been buried and two of them are still struggling. And then, you know, three of them, you know, just passed the bar. So it, 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 I don't think there's any, what I would tell people is be careful, be careful upon who you judge, because that's the person that you might need the most help from in the future. You know, they're not going to go to their Ivy League buddies to get advice when their kid falls down. They're going to need to go to the parents of the junkies and say, you know, what do I do? And not every person's advice is going to be the end all be all of advice, but at least it's someone who genuinely cares enough to tell you. So be careful how you treat them and be careful what you exclude them from. Because every holiday that someone like me sits home alone, I'm a pretty laid back person, so it's not going to change me, but there are people out there that it's going to bitter them Uh and they're not going to be there to help that next person who needs it. And it might be you. So that's what I would tell them. Be real careful how you treat other people. Because that golden rule in life is to treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah, is turning into treat people the way you might need to be treated one day. Yeah. The men- mental health aspect is just overlooked. And it's it's at some point you're trying to figure out what's beyond the disease and, 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 and trying to get to, there, there's bigger things and there's other triggers. And I think the mental health part is something that just a lot of times is just lost in, in trying to figure out how did how did you get here? How can you get out of here? Because the substance abuse for Chris 100% is a symptom of what was going it's on. It's the horse in the head. cart. Like, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's like, what happened first? You know, it and does, it doesn't matter. And now that he's older and he can articulate what he was feeling and all that stuff, like, I get it. I get why. But like, like, you didn't act like that upset you. You didn't, didn't, you had no reaction really when we got divorced, but yet you find out, you know, dad said this or dad did this. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? He's like, well, I didn't know why. And you're just like, oh my God. Well, that was the hardest thing with treatment too, was it's like, because we'd already been going through for many years struggles with mental health issues. But I know that's where the drug use came from. You know, like stopping feeling, you know, because you were feeling so bad. Yeah, and I yeah. knew that. I knew, you know, I said once, I, you know, Becca was doing drugs not because she wanted to die, but because she wanted to live, yeah. you know. 
and she was just trying to, to I know to she feel was just yeah. trying to live through her life that you know she had a lot of struggles but when we were you know finding with treatment you know it was like mental health treatment which she did plenty of but then when the addiction came it was like which she had a predisposition as well and you know I think as soon as like you said as soon as the trigger oh, yeah. switch um you know or addiction treatment you know and I was having a really hard time putting them together I couldn't even get her into Rosecrans because of that reason they said we don't have the mental health uh, support that she needs and she it's like which one is both. which one's on fire right now is yes. it mental health or is yeah. it the but use? they were both on fire and they're both yeah. they're feeding off each other and there's yeah. so few, and there are so few facilities that really will handle yeah. that dual diagnosis individual yes. that just has the drugs have have caused these mental deficiencies and a lot of it's cognitive right like you they're impaired they have overdoses they have stoppages of oxygen to their brain like right. their brain is not going to work right ever again like chronologically chris is 24 but he's not functioning at 24 and yeah. he probably never will function at what he is and that's okay yeah. that's okay you know, i keep telling him his journey is different than yeah. you know i'm like your brother is 22 and he's you know doing his thing and hanging out with his girlfriend or whatever and that's his journey i'm like you know everyone's you know, you see those things on Facebook where, you know, like Gates didn't get, you know, his first real paying job until he was 45 or whatever. You know, I mean, everyone has a different journey. As long as you're here, you, your journey continues. And once they get past the euphoria, which I still don't understand, that euphoria thing, you all probably have stories of them managing their self with yeah. the medicine. They're, yeah. they're managing. Oh, yeah. The self, the self like they, yeah. They, they taught, they've been to so many facilities. They can talk the lingo. They, mm. they know how to. I mean, oh, they're yeah. experts in the field. Experts. Yeah, they're all chemists. James Bond manipulation. Yeah. yeah. Once Becca, well, mo especially when she started using opioids, she kind of her all her friends changed. I mean, the people she hung out with. So, like, you know, the people who knew her knew you know knew who she really was. You know, weren't really around her anymore. You know, she had this. You know, she had like I didn't even know these people that she was hanging around. And so, when she died, I'm sure many of them were like shocked. You know, they might have known that she'd been experimenting and, you know, smoking. <laughs> they wouldn't go that far. But yeah. they probably had no idea that this, they would have, none of them would have ever thought this would have happened to her, you know, and the, the people who've known her all her life. And my family members, you know, extended, especially who didn't know any of it, you know, and Laura's very, always want to put a face to somebody because these are real people mm -hmm. with, promising lives and we all know smart and funny and you know all these wonderful qualities that they had and and I know when my mom was at um, the August 31st memorial the overdose awareness day I think it was shocking to her to see you know because there up at the Arlington Heights this was you know all these suburban kids and isn't who you think it was interesting at that it's up on the hill at Lake Arlington and people are parking and some people are going rollerblading and some people are walking and then bit by bit people start coming up onto the hill mm -hmm. and they're like it's kind of sheepishly coming up and you know they don't it's you know yeah come on come on I mean and some people were just observing but it was just more and more people just kept coming up because they were impacted yeah I think my mom was shocked to yeah. see all these pictures yeah. of these mostly in their 20s you know teenagers 20s you know, mostly Caucasian kids. They just look like just well, your normal I, everyday kids. I, mean, I like was at that, and I was taking you know the pictures that Laura has of all the people that have passed. And I was taking pictures of my son's friends 
and sending him. And then he, I was like, how did we get here? How did the kid, he went to kindergarten, why is he on the panel now being gone? It's like, how did we get here? Went to a funeral and one of the moms had been with this generation of kids, more funerals than weddings. And it was like yeah. so poignant. It was like mm-hmm. so just stopped in your tracks. Well, and just, you know, I mean, you know, and I say that it's just shocking, like, the population is happening to now. It's certainly not to discount any other demographics or, you know, socioeconomic groups that it's happening to as well. Because I, unfortunately, this is what it takes, you know, to to help everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody deserves help, you know, no matter where they are. Like right you were now. saying, like, the, the demographics of, you know, the typical white teenager from mm-hmm. the suburbs. And I do kind of get fixated on that because that is what my son was. Yeah. And I'm talking to somebody at the hospital who was a new employee. And I'm going on and on and on. And almost as if, like, my son was the only one at this spot. And he, she goes, yeah, my dad's a hair organic. And I was like, okay. I mean, he's an older man. He lives in this. I mean, just like, took me out of my self-centeredness yeah. of it's not just yeah. me. You know, it's, there's a lot of people out there that are affected. And you wouldn't think they were. In a million years, I wouldn't have thought that was going to come out of her mouth. I drove my daughter and a kid I never knew to a facility, hoping they could find something in Missouri, you know, five and a half hours. And it was just after I had an eye operation, we're driving to a snowstorm. And I'm not, I don't even know this kid. I don't know his story, but I know his story because I know my kid's story. And so the mom texted me afterwards and said, uh, thank you, but why did you send, you know, why did you take my son there? You know, I mean, not in a bad way, meaning mm-hmm. thank you, but why did you do it? And I said, I think you would have taken my daughter if, if she I'd was like there. to think that you would have taken my daughter, and, for sure. And she would have, yeah. you know. Yeah. You just you bond with people you don't <clears throat> even know because you know. Thanks, everyone, for um, sharing your stories with us today. I really appreciate it. I know it's not always easy to talk about, but it definitely is so important. And for all the listeners out there, whatever shoes you're in, whether you have personally been affected by having a relationship with somebody with substance use disorder or whether you haven't but um, may encounter somebody that either is struggling or is a family member of somebody that is, I really think there was so much to learn about what was shared. I do just have, I guess, one last question for all of you. Is there anything else that you haven't shared tonight that you would want others to know is there anything specifically that you want to say to others that are struggling with having a relationship with somebody that's struggling with substance use disorder? From, from my side of things, I would say, um, and, and also you know, people who are still going through it, to the parents and the siblings, you know, the friends of someone with substance use disorder, is get support for yourself. Get yourself educated. I mean, that would probably be my biggest thing to say um things I, I i wish you know that i had done and just learn as much as you can and i think exactly what you said i mean i think loving them through it the more i hear that you know it's and you're gonna need the support if you're going through it because it, it can be a long journey um unfortunately but you know there there is there is help out there i that's what i'd say just keep getting help Keep looking, keep searching, don't give up. Don't give up hope. Addiction thrives in silence. It just festers in silence. I kept thinking that I didn't have a problem. It was my daughter's problem. I didn't need help. It was her problem. She needed to get fixed. And 
when my husband finally dragged me to a meeting, I realized I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it helped with support of people around, even though I'm crying now. <laughs> Crying's amazing. It, it, it makes you feel better when you hear uh, other yeah. people's stories. And sometimes you even go, shit, I'm not doing so bad. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing is you walk into the meetings and you think driving here, you have the worst story. And you get about halfway through the story and say, oh my God, I better make something up because I'm not. But it, 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 there is no worse story. And it's yeah. just hearing, I always say, when I leave and I go home, I feel better. And the only person you can really work on in the meeting is yourself. The way you interact with your kids is is key to their recovery. Yes. Chris has always said to me, he's like, you've always come at me, no matter how pissed or whatever, he's like, you've always come at me with compassion. And I can work with compassion. When someone's screaming in my face and this and that and that, He's like, I completely shut you out. Mm-hmm. He's like, but when you explain to me that your biggest fear is burying me, he's like, it, it hits me in, in my head and my heart. And he goes, I get it. And it makes me want to do what, you know, I have to do. And, you know, I he's just what even you hear, like, the smallest things, you know, he's very against AA, hate it, hate it, hate it. Then I was like, oh, there's little pieces of it that I, I can take. And then I was like, just give it a try, whatever works for you. And then now he's like, AA is the only thing that's going to keep me alive. And he's like, and I remember you saying, oh, what, do you want to do AA? Do you want to do SMART? He's like, you're always open to everything. He's like, you know, whatever works, whatever keeps you sober and, you know, on track, we're going for it. And he's like, you've always just said to me, just, yeah, I was like, that's good, that's good, that's good. You've always been behind me. So letting them know that you're not going to give up, you know, that's the biggest thing. Yeah, we're all in this together. Giving up is not an option. So it's like, when you say that, it's like, oh yeah, like literally it is off the table. So this is what we're going to do now. And if we have to do that, and we have to do that, we do that, that's fine. But giving up, that's not even in the cards. So don't even, it's not even an option. And when your frame of mind gets that way, you become, you know, just this like mama bear. It's like, all right, let's keep going. This is what we're going to do. Well, this is the cards we've been dealt today. Well, we're going to try this medication. Or we're going to try this treatment center. Or we're going to try whatever. And I think when they see you working, you know, mentally is hard and speaking to them in the language that they are hearing from other places i mean they get you in you know you're in 100 percent with them so one of the things flora always said was using your i words and i, I think i practiced that a little bit more and mm-hmm. and sam said well we communicate a little bit better mm-hmm. um so i think you know using the i words does help mm-hmm. um, and let them know how you feel how it's affecting you not not what they're doing to you Mm-hmm. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. listening. If substance use in any way impacts you, you are not alone. Help and support are available. Live for Lolly is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, safety, and education for patients and families impacted by substance use disorders and other mental health conditions. For information or help, please visit us at liveforlolly.org or on any of our social media channels. Call 844 584 5254 or email us at info at liveforlolly.org.